invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you're doing that, I look out and I see Don and Beth Workman here. I have to just pause. Um, a lot of connections with Don and Beth. Um, Don and Beth just retired from, uh, from 28 years of, of pastoral ministry at Faith Baptist Church Sp- Streetsboro, now serving with Evangelism Explosion um, and uh, seeking to go around and minister to churches. Beth taught for how many years here at our school, Beth? 23 years uh, here at Northfield Baptist Christian School, uh, the one who started our, pre, our pre-kindergarten program and saw it all the way through. Uh, so a lot of ties there. Don and Beth pastored the, the, used to pastor church my sister goes to in New York. So I have, a, I have another sibling connection there back in Cincinnati, uh, New York. Uh, they were her pastor. Um, they dropped off a document this week at the church. It was my ordination paper. Uh, Don was there at my ordination council back in 1988 uh, when I was ordained for, for ministry. And it goes back even further than that. Beth's mom used to ride with my dad down to college. Uh, they were both from New York and uh, didn't live that far, that, that far away. Uh, and so her mom would ride. Um, my, my dad, I, I guess maybe because he was a veteran, I don't know how he had money to have a, college, uh, have a car in those days, but he did. And so one of the ones down there, so he would, t- he would t- took people, and, and uh, Beth's mom uh, would, would get, catch a ride down there. So a lot of family connections. Good to have you here uh, this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, just uh, these verses, uh, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul wrote those words to Christians who were facing crisis. He wrote those words to Christians, and it comes up several times in the letter, who were experiencing afflictions. That's not boo-boos, that's, that's deep hurts. He, he writes this to Christians, and this is repeated, who were suffering. He, he writes this to Christians who were sorrowing. Christians facing crisis. He says to them, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. You know, crisis seems to compel people to pray. I don't know if you've you've noticed that, but I'm not saying everybody, but crisis seems to compel people to pray. Of course, everyone's quite familiar with all the events of last Sunday, the uh, uh, helicopter crash that took the life of of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and, and others that were on board that, that helicopter. I read an interesting article. Um, actually, it was in the New York Times. I read this article. Um, and here's the title. After hearing Bryant's helicopter went down, they prayed. Um, and and the, the article really, really is, is written from the, from the perspective of what sort of became a, a focal point if you wanted to be a gawker, if you wanted to see. Uh, there happens to be a church that was right there called the Church in the Canyon. Uh, and, and probably the, if, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to catch a glimpse of, 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 where the, of, of where the accident happened and maybe even see some of the smoke, it was actually from the front 
parking lot of this church over, over where their, their sign marquee is. You could, you could, that, that was a gathering place, and, and so you could actually see. So as you can well imagine, people began to gather there at that spot uh, as word began to get out. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it wasn't too long before it was like global, and people are, are showing up just to want to, to, want to see. And, and this reporter noted that, that uh, as word was spreading and people were gathering, you would find people praying. The article also noted that there at the Mamba Sports Center, which is where uh, Kobe Bryant and party were headed, uh, that when word arrived, uh, games stopped. Um, the room set, fell silent. Basketballs were dropped, and the article said, and people prayed. The reporter observed, and this is, this is from the reporter, that one thing the sports center and the church had in common, he noted, prayers. Then as the crowds grew, he, he continues to go on in this article because he'd been talking with the pastor of the church there, so he's sort of giving his perspective on all of this. As crowds grew in the church's parking lot uh, throughout the day and into the afternoon, uh, the pastor, about mid-afternoon, went out and announced that there would be a 6.30 prayer service. Eighty people came. And here's the thing. The the church itself only averages about 75 for a worship service. Eighty people came to that prayer time, most of which the pastor said he'd never seen before. Broad range of ages and ethnicities gathered to pray. Crisis seems to compel people to pray. You have no doubt heard about the coronavirus crisis in China that has spread out from there. Over 14,000 diagnosed. Last report, more than 300 dead, and that, that just, those numbers just continue to go up been detected in 24 countries. Now, I can assure you that the Chinese government has not issued a call to pray. They're doing everything they can to try to contain everything. And perhaps, perhaps God might show them how powerless they are. But Christians in China are praying. And Christians in China are asking that we pray. Because crisis seems to compel people to pray. For those of you that remember 9-11, and I am aware that uh, there are increasingly numbers that don't, because they weren't, they weren't here when it happened. If you remember that, in the, in the wake of that, of that attack and that tragedy, people showed up for prayer meetings. People that don't even go to church. They showed up to pray. We've certainly seen a, a slew more than we would ever, ever want of, of mass shootings. It's interesting, the, the same article I cited earlier, said it was just 14 months ago, 14 months ago that there was a, there was a mass shooting in Thousand Oaks. Okay, that's where, that's where this whole helicopter was headed. 15 miles away, there was a mass shooting just 14 months ago in, in Thousand Oaks when a shooter killed 12 people. Seven of them were college students who were gunned down. And, and if you've noticed, in the aftermath of those kind of horrific, horrific events, 
there will be expressions of prayer. You will hear expressions of prayer and there will be prayer vigils because crisis seems to compel people to pray. But you know, it's true personally as well. In fact, I was thinking through this and I was reminded back in, in the scriptures to, to the life of, of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and, and before, you know, before Paul was, became a Christian and a follower of Christ, he was, he was really zealously persecuting the church. And, 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 and Christ met Paul on, on that road to Damascus. He's heading from Jerusalem to Damascus. And, and, and Christ just came in and, and intersected and, and he confronted Saul. And, and that confrontation, that experience there in Acts 9 was a, was a personal crisis for him. It, it was a crisis of faith. And, and in the midst of that crisis, where do we find him? Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Behold, he is praying. He's praying. He'd never prayed like that before, I can assure you. Because everything, that, everything that, that he'd been living for, everything they thought was true, everything he thought was important, and everything he thought that mattered was suddenly just taken away from him. And, and now he couldn't see, and he wasn't eating, but he was praying. See, whether, whether it's on a personal level, whether it's on a national level, whether it's on a global scale, a commonly reported human response to crisis is prayer. So why is that? Why is that? Why do people turn to prayer in crisis? I mean, all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Why do people turn to prayer in crisis? Probably, I, I would submit two, two, two primary reasons, and you can, you can add to it, but I, I would submit two primary reasons. One is because prayer is something we do when we feel powerless. We feel like there's nothing else we can do. I mean, what else can we do? And so there's just this, there's, there's, we're confronted with these situations, and, and we don't get them. We don't know what to do. We don't, we don't have any answers. We don't have strength. We don't know. There, there's nothing we have to offer. So, so our powerlessness or the, the, the sense of powerlessness of people drives them to prayer. And crisis does that. Crisis exposes our powerlessness. Now, that, that's not an easy thing because, listen, let's be honest. Personally, none of us likes to admit weakness. We, we don't want to own up to it. As, as Deb and I were caring for my parents, I'll tell you, my dad had a hard time owning up to not being able to do what he used to be able to do. And, and I'll be real, I've, I've interacted with some of you out there, and you don't want to do that either. Why? Because we, we don't want to own up to, to weakness. We don't want to own up to powerlessness. That'll be me someday, so it's not, I'm not pointing fingers. We don't like the feelings of powerlessness. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to concede powerlessness in an age of amazing discoveries and advance. I mean, listen, after all, we think we can save the planet. So, so if we can save the planet, what can't we save with enough ingenuity? But powerlessness is reality. It is. It's part of being human. 
Christian counselor Matthew Russell describes it this way. I want to quote it because I thought it was a great description. He writes this, Powerlessness has a thousand faces and a million expressions. At its core, it's about life we cannot control, about reality we cannot shape, about a future we cannot master. It's a mother holding her infant in the emergency room with a 104-degree temperature, realizing that there is nothing she can do to make her baby well. It's a phone call from your doctor to tell you your results have returned and you have cancer. It's the feeling that you don't have control over how much alcohol you drink, how many drugs you use, how much and what you eat, your sexual urges, your shopping impulses. It's the feeling of unworthiness and shame that washes over in an instant or the onset of anxiety, depression, or dread that comes on like the flu, seemingly out of nowhere. And such is life at times. Powerlessness, helplessness. Modern world especially has a hard time owning up to that. Go to other places in the world, they live with that reality because they know how weak they are. They know how vulnerable they are. We have this, we have this sort of deceived sense of invulnerability. In the wake of, of Kobe's death, his friend Jennifer Lopez offered prayers and reflected. She said this, life is so fragile. What, what was she saying? Well, she's saying life is uncertain. It's vulnerable. The life that we have is inherently weak. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You know, and, and you know, if we were to look at life, we, we would rather compare our lives like to, to the what we say, the, the, the strength of an ox or the longevity of a sea turtle. But Scripture gives us a different picture, like in Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days, they're like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. <laughs> it's like grass like a flower, beautiful in the morning. It's dead by night. James, in chapter 5, verse 14, sort of pushing against the, the pre, being presumptuous about the future warns. He says this, what is your life? You are a mist. <laughs> it appears for a little while, and it's gone. That's how the Bible describes it. In fact, Jesus, Jesus said this uh, as he was describing life. Matthew 6, 27. He said, which of you can add a single hour to the span of life? You don't have the power to do that. Oh, oh, you know, but I can go take a pill and get another shot. I can have a surgery. You know, and I can, not, not, not just hours. I can add days and years to my life. Okay. If that's what you want to believe... I probably can't convince you. Jesus said, which of you can add a single hour to his span of life? See, death is the ultimate demonstration of human powerlessness. It's no respecter of persons. 
Which, which maybe, is, maybe it's why the, the tragedy of, of last Sunday so captured the attention of the nation and, and world. I mean, death didn't care that one of the passengers on that helicopter was a famous basketball superstar with amazing talent, incredible wealth, and powerful influence. Death didn't care. Death didn't care that three of the passengers were teenagers. Death didn't care that it was men and women on that helicopter. It just swept in and took nine away. A few years back, there was an interesting statement. It was a, it was a USA Today article. It was written in 2013, which was the 50th. Uh, they were reflecting on the, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And in the story, they were interviewing Dr. James Humes. He was, he was one of two Navy pathologists that performed the autopsy on President Kennedy. And he was asked in this interview how the Kennedy case ranked among all the cases in his lengthy career. That'd be a pretty awesome, noteworthy case. His answer was this, and I'm quoting him. When people are on the autopsy table, they are all the same. See, we clothe ourselves with all kinds of resources to protect us, to preserve us as we face life, because we know we're vulnerable. The crisis has a way of just stripping all that away, and it exposes our powerlessness which often will then express itself in prayers. Because prayerlessness seems to drive people, or powerlessness seems to drive people to prayer. But I think there's a second response to that question of why this is true. Why does crisis compel people to pray? A second reason is because prayer is something that we do to connect with the transcendent. Prayer is something that people do to connect with the transcendent. When, when we talk about something being transcendent, we're talking about something that's, that's beyond the range of normal experience or, or beyond the range of, of, of normal human physical experience. Something that's beyond that. Transcends that. And so crises, which we've talked about, which expose our powerlessness, compel us to look somewhere for something bigger something greater, something that transcends the crisis, something that will give us a thread of hope to hold on to. If the, the rich, powerful, famous, influential can die that easily, what about, what about me and nobody, an unknown? So in those moments, in those moments of, of crisis, often people will turn to their higher power. They'll turn to their higher power. I, I've noticed that, that after, after crises, when you, when you read about you know, prayers being offered, I, I don't know that I ever, ever really read of anyone who actually will say who they're directing the prayer to. I'm not, I'm not mocking them. I'm just saying that's interesting. Prayers are offered. I'm not really sure to whom they're directed. But, but, I, but I think it's safe to say that, that they're directing them towards, they're directing them upward in the hopes of some kind of, some kind of whatever it might be, some kind of power, influence, whatever it might be that can, that can help bring some, some, uh, some reassurance to me in the face of this crisis. And they're praying, they're looking 
for something bigger than the crisis, something beyond the crisis, something that can, something that can bring maybe some sense of purpose, something that, can, that, that maybe can bring some sense of hope in the face of the powerlessness. And certainly, by virtue of offering up prayers, someone is saying, man, something is needed here that's more than what I have to give. And so in the, in the wake of a high-profile death, and if anyone had all kinds of worldly insulation around him, it would be Kobe Bryant. <laughs> and yet, death? What's that all about? <laughs> What's that all about? That could be me tomorrow. Not in a helicopter, but on a coroner's table. So when things happen like that, thoughts drift upward in prayers beyond the, beyond the shock, beyond the sorrow, beyond the pain, beyond the turmoil of the circumstance, searching, searching for some help, some source of help that's not here, <laughs> some, some kind of help that's, that's out there. Now, I, I know it, does, it doesn't take long for, you know, in these crises, it doesn't take long for inquiries and investigations to kick in. I mean, we're a, we're a week removed from that, and already the California legislature has a, a bill before it to, to require helicopters to have certain kinds of equipment on them from now on. I mean, so it's less than a week, and, and already, you know, the authorities have stepped in because, because why? This, is, this isn't going to happen again. That, that's why it happened, by the way, is because he didn't have that piece of equipment. And so, you know, it doesn't take long before we begin to kick in, and we, and we do come up with all kinds of, all kinds of, of human answers. But isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that, that the first reaction, the, the gut reaction so often is prayer? Because, because prayer is a means of connecting with the transcendent. Which brings us to make this affirmation that only God is transcendent. Only God is transcendent. You see, only God exists apart from, uh, from this physical universe that's, that, that's been created. Only God exists apart from that. Only God is not subject to the limitations of it all. When we talk about God being transcendent, we're saying that God is other from us. He is not us. He is other which puts him beyond us, which makes him separate from us, which says he is distinct from everything that he has made. This transcendent God has no beginning and no end. That's not true of us. This transcendent God is all-powerful. That's not true of us. He is unconquerably sovereign. That's not true of us. He knows everything. Not true of us. He can be everywhere at once. Wow. How? I don't know. Because I can't do that, but he can. He never changes. Doesn't need to. You don't change perfection. He's totally pure. He's totally just. He's absolutely loving absolutely compassionate. He spoke the world into existence. He created everything that is. Not us. We didn't do that. He did. Isaiah said that the ways and the thoughts of God are higher than anything on earth. 
And Isaiah also described God this way. He said, God sits above the circle of the earth. Solomon declared that the highest heaven cannot contain God. And the psalmist asked this question, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Well, the answer is, well, no one. No one's like him. Not at all. Do we reflect his image? Yeah, faintly. Is there someone greater than any tragedy, any crisis, who understands what's happening, who sees where it's all heading, and can hold it all up? Is there anyone who can do that? Absolutely there is. God can do that. And here's the promise that he will do that. Because not only is God transcendent, but God is also near. He is also near. He is not distant. He is not isolated. He is not so far above us as to not be known. He has made himself known. He has drawn near and revealed himself to us. He has entered our world. He enters our lives. He is in our circumstances. He is present. He is near to us through his word. He is near to us through the comfort of his spirit. He is near to us through the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This transcendent God of glory and grace and truth and power and might and eternity is near us. He's near us. He's so far beyond us, and yet he's here and present in this world. In this world. See, we live in a world that's beautiful. There's a lot of ugliness in it as well. This this world, this neighborhood, these neighborhoods, I mean, this world, this is where life happens for us. This is where we're born, it's where we live. It's where we work. This is where we have families. It's where we make memories. This is where we go through all kinds of all kinds of events of life. Some of them like fantastic, and some of them really hurtful and hard. This is where we die. In our world, the news is both good and bad. In our world, nations and political parties fight for power. In our world, deadly viruses break out. In our world, people who are famous and unknown die in helicopter crashes. That's the world in which we live. But there's more to it. There's so much more. None of it's random. And though we're powerless, we're not helpless. See, there's purpose because there's a God who transcends it all. He transcends it all. A God who has come near to us. Who came near to us in Jesus. 
God who came near to us and Jesus and, 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 and Jesus as the God-man came into this messed up world, this sinful world where horrible things happen, where sin seems to reign. He came into this world, flesh and blood, faced crises himself, He faced death head on when he died on the cross in your place, in my place. Taking my sin on himself, taking your sin on himself. This Jesus who then transcended death through his resurrection. Who ascended and is enthroned beyond this earth in the glory of heaven from where he will come one day in final glorification. This is the God we worship. This is the God we trust. This is the God we turn to. So all of that was just like the introduction to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Can we take that back to that passage for just a moment as we wrap it up. Paul is writing to Christians who were living and dying in a tough set of circumstances. These were, these were people, these were Christians who were vulnerable to hostility from the Jewish leaders. The, the same ones that hated Jesus. The same, the same thread and network of, uh, of leaders who, who cried for the crucifixion of Jesus. We see that same spirit, that same, that same um, attitude here in the city of Thessalonica where these believers were. So they're, they're facing vulnerability from the hostility of Jewish leaders. They're facing harassment from Gentile authorities. For these, for these Christians... Every day held the potential of crisis for them. I mean, when they gathered, however they gathered, they were at risk. To the degree that it was known or became known that they were followers of Jesus, they were at risk. So every time they, they, they walked out the door of their house, they faced the potential of crisis. By the way, it's not unlike our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, not only are they facing this coronavirus, I don't know if you realize, yesterday, yesterday, new laws went into effect in China, putting new restriction on all forms of religious activity, as if they weren't already strict. Like about 41 new laws went into place yesterday, cracking down even more. Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing persecution, who, who are literally facing the risk of their gatherings being interrupted, who have had pastors dragged off to prison. Now, not unlike what these Thessalonian Christians were, were facing to some degree. And what was Paul's counsel to them? How, how should they face the fact of living constantly in the face of hardships due to their faith. Here's his counsel. Rejoice always. 
Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in everything. Now, is he like, does, it, does he really mean that? Or, or maybe, may, is, he, is he just exaggerating a little bit? You know, especially the, the always without ceasing and in everything. I mean, those are like rather superlative. And, and, uh, and, and so isn't Paul doing what, what, what writers would do? He's, he's just really trying to, to, to drive home a point, to tell them how important this is. And, and, you know, and certainly sometimes when we're trying to really make a point, you know, we might exaggerate. Not, it's not that we're not telling the truth. We just really exaggerate a little, what we call a little hyperbole, you know, to really drive home the point. Is that what he's doing? Does he really mean? I mean, does he, how, how literally do we take this? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. No, I, I think that Paul as he is writing to these Christians, as he is calling upon them to be conscious of God's transcendence. Whether the crisis is persecution for them, whether it's the difficulties of life for us, there, there is inherently in such, such an exhortation to be rejoicing always, to be praying without ceasing, and to be giving in thanks in everything, inherently in Exhortations like that is a call to live your life conscious of the presence and the transcendence and the greatness and the glory and the power of God, no matter what. To live your life that way. Not just draw upon it when you need it, but to to live your life that way. So how do we do that? Well, as you face the crisis that's in front of you, he's saying, look to the God who's beyond you. Okay, and, and isn't that what we're saying? You hit crisis, you know, people hit crisis and, and, and they're looking, and they, they, see, they, they see the wreckage. They, they see the heartache, they see the disaster, they see whatever it might be, and, 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 and there's, there's, there's no hope there, there's no answers there, so they, they, they look beyond. They're, they're looking beyond for something. And this is a call, a reminder that we're always looking to God. You see, to pray without ceasing, yes, it's to pray frequently, but it's more than that. Yes, to, to pray without ceasing is to, is to never give up on prayer, but it's more than that. I was thinking, there, there's, only, there's only one thing I do ceaselessly. You know what that is? It's live. It's live until... God says no more. And so ceaseless praying, therefore, must be living a life of prayer. Conscious, continual awareness of the presence of this mighty, transcendent God, leaning into him, leaning upon him, this God who has no limitations. You see, there's not a crisis that will come your way that you will face outside of the presence of God or outside of the purposes of God. And so that's your reassurance when crisis comes. It's not like God took a little vacation. He's there. He's there. So praying without ceasing, if I can use 
Matt Russell's definition from earlier, praying without ceasing is when that mom holds her infant in the emergency room with a 104 degree temperature, realizing there's nothing she can do to make her baby well, and she knows God's there with her, helping her. Or when that phone call comes from the doctor telling you the test results are back and the cancer has returned and you feel powerless and you respond as if God's right there with you because he is. Or when alcohol or drugs or sexual urges fight to control you, you remember that the God who transcends powerlessness is there for you. When feelings of unworthiness and shame wash over you, Anxiety sets in. Depression comes from out of nowhere. God's there. He's there. You see, ceaseless prayer is that constant, instantaneous connection between your crisis and God's transcendence. Prayer, this this amazing Amazing God. So far beyond us. My little crisis here. Prayer connects them. Praying ceaselessly says that's where we live. That's where we live. And that's why the, that's why the ceaseless praying can be expressed just like in sometimes just ongoing conversations with God throughout the day. Life is uncertain. We certainly are reminded of that. Crashes and coronaviruses and crises can happen to any of us. Prayer is what connects our powerlessness to God's glory. His transcendence. It's just brought near to us. Brought near to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what's what's available to us. That's who's available to us. Why would you not avail yourself of what God has made available? He's there. So turn to him. Lord, help us, I pray, to do that. We live our lives in your, in your very presence, Lord. There's, it certainly is true that, that we, don't, we, we never step out of your sight. We never step out of your presence. So all of our lives are lived in full view. And Lord, this, this admonition to ceaseless prayer, Lord, is, a, is just a, a, it's, it's a reminder, a consciousness of the fact that you are there. We, we live lives fully before you. And the crisis... Face right there. There you are. There you are. Because you're for your children. You never leave us or forsake us. So Lord, remind us of that as we as we're making our way through these lives. And Lord, just so so convinced because I'm just aware of it in my own life. Lord, that how, how easily this, this this place of prayer in our lives can get pushed to the side. It can become, Lord, the, the, 
limited to the devotions thing in the morning and the worship service on Sunday. And God, this is a way that, this is a way that we live. We, we live this. We do it through Christ who made it possible. He's the one who has made this, this connection between God of transcendence, beauty, glory, perfection, and us sinners facing the troubles of life. Christ connects them. So we look to him, and Lord, I pray everyone this morning will be looking to him. For the one who doesn't know him today, may they cast themselves upon you, trusting his finished work on their behalf, paying the penalty for their sin, that they might have life everlasting. Today, Lord, today, bring them into that relationship. And today, Lord, you know what's on everyone's heart, and today, may we cast the burden at your feet. May we realize that whatever, whatever the crisis is, as huge as it may seem, Lord, as small as it may seem to us, that you're there. You're there. And you're with us. And you'll see us through it. Help us to live there. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we can-